Coming up on the Keto Cam Podcast, we have a special episode, Ask Us Anything, with myself and Cynthia Thurlow. We are designed to eat when it's light outside, not eat before bedtime, Aligned with the way that you know we've thrived over thousands and thousands of years, but it's only since the advent of light and the processed food industry that all of a sudden people are doing exactly the opposite, and in many ways to the detriment of our metabolic health. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. I'm excited to bring back to the show the wonderful Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner of over 20 years, And we decided to get together and record an Ask Us Anything podcast. She is going to simultaneously release this episode on her podcast, the Everyday Wellness Podcast. And I hope you're subscribed to her podcast. It is awesome. And I'm releasing it as well today on today's Keto Camp Podcast episode. We get into some questions that uh, our audience has submitted to us via Instagram and other platforms as we started to get ready for this conversation. So here is what we discussed today. How do you keep your energy levels up if you are transitioning from being a sugar burner to a fat burner? What if you're struggling during that metabolic flexibility transition? We're going to give some tips on MCTs and L-carnitine supplementation and some of the clues and hints to why you might not feel that great as you're doing keto and how to change that. We'll talk about sleep. How do you know if you're getting enough sleep and why we emphasize quality, not quantity? And we'll break down REM sleep, deep sleep, how to improve those metrics, how to track those metrics. We'll get into the nervous system, sympathetic versus parasympathetic. We also get into protein. How much protein should you consume on a keto diet? We'll get into some rules of thumb, some protein myths surrounding how much you could process in a single meal. We'll get into candida. One of the questions that was asked was, can fasting help with candida overgrowth and other overgrowths in the body? So we'll talk about what happens when you fast and how you essentially starve down bacteria and candida. We'll talk about the role of caprylic acid and MCT oil as it relates to candida. And we discuss insomnia, a question that was asked, how do you overcome insomnia? So we'll discuss both acute insomnia, chronic insomnia. We'll get into some sleep tips. We'll get into some hormone testing. We'll get into the amazing benefits of taking creatine every day. And she has her own creatine line as well. But we'll get into why women and men should be taking creatine every day. We'll get into the recommended dosage and what that does for the body, for the brain, for your muscles. I've been taking creatine every day. It's made a big difference with my strength 
and putting on lean muscle, and so much more. So before I bring on Cynthia Thurlow for an awesome conversation, I want to take a minute to get to today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from E.M. Barks titled, Keto Camp Equals Amazing. Here is what E.M. Barks wrote. Keto Camp is a fabulous podcast. Ben utilizes true science to guide the shows. His guests are relevant, current, and knowledgeable. I'm 55 years old, and I recently gotten healthy after the death of my mother at 75. She was diabetic, had every joint replaced, and had metastatic breast cancer. Thanks to informative presentations on the Keto Camp podcast, I have found a functional medicine doctor and have taken back my life. I'm down 30 pounds, down to 140 pounds total. My thyroid disease is under control and my prediabetes is under control and I can move. Thank you. Wow, EM Barks. That is amazing. I am so sorry to hear about the death of your mother and the struggle she had. Uh, the, you know, Diabetes is so preventable and reversible and you're the perfect example of that. So my thoughts and prayers and love is with you today. And I hope Keto Campers, you send Ian Barks your thoughts and prayers and love as well. I'm so proud of you for taking ownership and responsibility. I always say if you treat your health casually, you end up a casualty. And that's not you. You are treating your health with priority. And congrats on the 30 pounds down, the thyroid disease under control, the prediabetes that is under control and moving your body. That is so cool. Congratulations. And thanks for sharing that. And also thanks for listening to the show. If you have not left the Keto Cam Podcast, a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening from today, please do so right now. Maybe I'll read your review on the next episode. If you want to watch the video format of today's interview with Cynthia Thurlow and any of the Keto Cam Podcast interviews, that could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Keto Camp. Quick reminder that our seven-day Keto Kickstart Challenge, which is 100% free, is about to start on April 10th, we are just a few days away. If you haven't registered for that challenge yet, head over to ketocampchallenge.com. And we have guest speakers, Dr. Jason Fung coming on the challenge, Dr. Ken Berry, and Dr. Boz, not to mention the Keto Camp coaches and myself and some other special guests as well. Plus, we're giving away over $20,000 in free prizes. And one of those prizes is a one-year membership to our signature course, the Keto Camp Academy. And all you need to do is register and show up April 10th through April 17th. Head over to ketocampchallenge.com to learn about it and get registered for that challenge. All right, here is Cynthia Thurlow for an awesome Ask Us Anything podcast interview. Cynthia Thurlow is a nurse practitioner. She's also a specialist in metabolic health and intermittent fasting. She has a great book called The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, all about fasting for women. Go get the book if you haven't gotten it yet. She's the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast. She has spent over 20 years in clinical medicine working in both the emergency room and cardiology. She soon recognized the strong link between food and her patients' health and well-being. This prompted her to pursue advanced training in nutrition and functional testing in order to assist others in achieving optimal health. She has a TEDx talk on intermittent fasting with over 10 million views. She is a rock star speaking on stages all across the world. She's been on some of the top podcasts in the world. And today we have a fun conversation. Here is Cynthia Thurlow. 
Cynthia, I I love that we're doing this today. We're going to have some fun. Absolutely. And and for listeners, I think many of you probably know this, but Ben and I are genuinely really good close friends uh, inside the podcast and outside. And so it's always a pleasure to have our communities come together and foster a question and answer session. And I was just telling you before we started recording that I think this has really become a favorite thing to do is to record with, you know, people that have been on the podcast multiple times. There's so much synergy. There's so much alignment. And I think we were agreeing to agree on this and we'll have to dive into all these amazing questions that people submitted. Some great questions. We reviewed them beforehand. I love that we got these uh, different different dynamics with the questions. And yeah, it's a great day when we could merge the Everyday Wellness Podcast and the Keto Chem Podcast all in one uh, session. So let's dive right in, Cynthia. Exactly. So we're going to start with Sarita. She asked how to keep your energy up. I'm on keto and fasting, but still tired after a month of ketosis. Yeah, this could happen. The body is still going through an adaptation period, Sarita. And for most people, that adaptation period is about 7 to 14 days. For others, it could be a little bit longer. It sounds like you're in the, the latter category. And Sarita is actually a student in my academy. So, you know, I would, I would uh, recommend to just keep working on that metabolic flexibility, keep incorporating those healthy fats, those saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and then eventually, you know, pair it with intermittent fasting when your body's ready. The, as you know, Cynthia, the intermittent fasting part would be a great way to give your body some energy because when you're in a fasted state, the body wants to survive. It's going to give you. Uh, it's going to raise those counter-regulatory hormones so you go out there and hunt and kill. But what can you do in the meantime until you get that switch? I would recommend a few things. This is where I would strategically use something like exogenous ketones. And in general, I'm not a huge fan of exogenous ketones because people just like to drink them and not actually do the work. But Sarita, you're doing the work. So just to supplement with exogenous ketones like the one from Kinetic or HVMN are two of my go-to could just be a good way to flood the, the body, the blood, the brain with some ketones and you might feel a little bit better. There's also some things you can do with um, MCT oil, uh, which is kind of like an exogenous ketone, although it's not. But uh, C8 caprylic acid is the one that's most researched when it comes to energy production and um, ketone production. And the cool thing about these medium chain fats is that there's no bile required to break it down, no stomach enzymes. It, it goes right into the mitochondria for energy. I would just caveat this and say go very slow and low with MCT oil. A lot of people hear about the benefits. and I'm sure you see this all the time, Cynthia. They'll take two tablespoons and then they're running to the bathroom, like stomach distress, disaster pants, as Dave Asprey calls it. So start with maybe one teaspoon and then if you feel good the next day, two teaspoons and work your way up to one to two tablespoons eventually. And the last thing I'll add here is L-carnitine. This could be a great time to add in L-carnitine. The way that I've, I use it is it's kind of like a, a mechanism for shuttling some fat to your mitochondria, which also helps with ketone production. And then, of course, looking at the fundamentals like sleep and stress and, and all that good stuff, which, which I'm sure you'll touch upon in, in a second. But those are my initial thoughts, Sarita. Your body's adapting. You might want to throw in those supplements to see if it does the trick short term until you fully achieve that metabolic flexibility. But Cynthia, what would you add to this conversation here? Great responses. And ironically, some of the things you talked about, I was like, oh, L-carnitine in particular, a definitely favorite supplement. Um, Sarita, I would say as you are transitioning to becoming more metabolically flexible, you know, for some people, it does take longer. Sometimes it's four to six weeks or even longer to be able to effectively utilize 
uh, stored fats as a fuel source. And so I, I think about leaning into the lifestyle, you know, Ben's done a really nice job of identifying some things that you can do in terms of supplementation. I would make sure you're getting high quality sleep. I would ensure you're properly hydrated with electrolytes. I feel like so many individuals when they go lower carb or even ketogenic, they don't realize that that electrolyte loss can actually contribute to what we sometimes call keto flu, but it's this loss of electrolytes that will actually mimic some of the fatigue, nausea, malaise, just not feeling great. You know, high quality options like Element or Redmond's are really nice ways to support your body. And there are unflavored electrolytes for when you're in a fasted state and you can use the other ones in your feeding window. I also think about where are you in your menstrual cycle? I don't know your age. So certainly if you are still menstruating, uh, still under uh, under the age of, the threshold of the average age of menopause is, is 51. So if you're still in perimenopause or peak cycling years, understanding that there are gonna be times in your menstrual cycle when it's gonna be easier to effectively utilize a low carb or ketogenic diet and, and fast. And so understanding from the day you start menstruating up until roughly around ovulation, that's your superpower. Estrogen predominates and you certainly have more metabolic flexibility and uh, the ability to fast and uh, go lower carbohydrate, push your workouts, et cetera, is optimized. And then kind of backing off on the fasting piece and adjusting your carbohydrate intake as you're heading into the luteal phase when progesterone predominates. The other thing that I would think about is if you're having significant fatigue and this is persistent, is to consider touching base with your internist or primary care provider to get some labs drawn especially in, in women that are still in, in their peak fertile years, you know, iron loss, thyroid issues can all exacerbate these things and really looking at your sex hormones. I think that that's always the last, you know, last recommendation if you're still having debilitating fatigue is really what else could be contributing to it. Um, and certainly, you know, you know, touching base with your primary care provider if you find that it's persistent. But as Ben said, a lot of times this is this acclimatization, um, you know, process where you are, getting your body primed and ready to be able to effectively utilize carbohydrates and fats as a fuel source. And that can be a little bumpy and rocky, but I know you've got great support, certainly um, with Ben's program. And therefore, I think, you know, just giving yourself a little bit more time and then revisiting this if this persists with your doctor. Yeah, that's a great, great addition to the conversation. And, and it, let's say, Sarita, you are doing all of these things, you know, you got the electrolytes up, you're taking L-carnitine, you've experimented with exogenous ketones, your sleep is pretty good, and you're still not feeling well, then I do agree with Cynthia, it's probably a good time to maybe get a full thyroid panel, maybe do something like a Dutch test, and uh, maybe even explore like an environmental issue. It could be potentially, I'm not saying it is, but we want, might want to explore this. It might be a mold situation where there's a uh, black mold or some sort of mold in your environment, or even more of like a heavy metal toxicity issue. I'm not saying that's what you need to focus on right now, but if you're doing all the things right, and you're still not getting to the point where you feel good because you should really feel great with keto and fasting, then you might want to explore those other avenues. That's such a good point. And it's interesting because I, I did a, a podcast with Dr. Aaron Hartman last year, and 25% of the population is more susceptible to mycotoxins and mold. And that was something I didn't actually realize. I happen to be one of those people. And yeah. so you can get cumulative mold exposure. And, and for some people, they may never really persist with symptoms, but others can. It could be like over time, cumulatively, that can be a problem. So definitely something to kind of think about in the future if your symptoms persist, um, but you bring up a great, great addition with the heavy metals and uh, mold or mycotoxins. 
It's always important to explore that when you're doing everything right and you're just not feeling well. You got to think environmental toxicity. I know that it takes time and it takes money to do all that, but just focus on one thing, check it off, and then get to the next thing. So start with the low hanging fruit here, the salt, the electrolytes. Uh, you know, I don't know where you're at with your, your menstrual cycle either, but fine tuning that and then you could explore the other avenues and go upstream if you need to. Absolutely. Mary Dooley submitted a question. What is going on inside my body when my ketones are 1.8, but my glucose is 115, 19 hours into a fast? Yes, Mary. This is a common a common uh, question I see. So a couple things. Number one, your ketones are in a really good range at 1.8. Uh, and that I know that you're testing blood, so that's going to be your finger prick, uh, millimolar. So 1.8 is terrific. It's showing that your body is using fat for fuel. Now, the glucose is a little bit elevated. And my question would be this, is it trending up or is that glucose at 115 and trending back down? Because you said 19 hours into a fast, it's at 115. But I'm curious to know what was it 14 hours into a fast, uh, 12 hours into it, just was the trend going up? Was it staying at 115 or is it going down from a higher level? If you see the trend going up, because what we want to see during a fast is we want to see a gradual increase in ketones, which means your body's burning fat, which is what you want to do. And then you want to see a gradual decrease in your blood glucose. If you're seeing your ketones maybe staying the same or going up, but the, the glucose are going up too, could mean a couple of things. Um, number one, it could be that you might have a really stressful day. Uh, it could be mental stress and that cortisol, glucose is following the cortisol and that might be what's happening there. Number two, you could be going into gluconeogenesis and, and, and breaking down some protein. Maybe you're not as metabolically flexible yet. So you might want to just decrease the fasting window and work more on getting more fat adapted and then bring back the fasting window. But I would need more specific numbers. So I would recommend doing that, that test where you test right when you wake up in the morning and then maybe three hours into your fast and then right before you break the fast and see where it's trending and do it three days in a row to get an average. I wouldn't put too much value and too much emphasis on just one day. There are so many variables as Cynthia teaches us, you know, hormones are fluctuating, different uh, emotional stressors are going on. So I would do three days in a row, get an average, but track it throughout the fast and see where it's trending. If you do see it continuously trend up the glucose, then you might want to have a smaller fasting window, maybe clean up your stress and your sleep a little bit, work a little bit more on fat adaptation, and then give it another shot. That's what That would be my recommendation. What about you, Cynthia? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, and I would tell my own patients this, you know, one metric does not give me the full clinical picture. And so my first question would be, you know, getting a better representation of what your blood sugar is doing over the course of a day. You know, where are you in your menstrual cycle if you're still menstruating? You know, what other lifestyle variables could have contributed? So, you know, did you go through a day where you had um, higher carbs and this is, you know, this is afterwards or were you not as physically active, which we know we really have to think about our muscles as a glucose disposal unit. And so understanding that that can play a role, you know, physical activity is one of the biggest predictors of insulin sensitivity. Also thinking about, you know, stress management. We know when cortisol goes up, blood sugar goes up, insulin goes up as a counter-regulatory response. Um, and then the other piece of it is really, you know, looking collaboratively, what other lifestyle factors could be impacting? Have you had high quality sleep? Are you given, getting seven to eight hours a night of sleep? Um, what else is going on in your personal history? 
Are you going through a move, a divorce? I mean, other variables that can impact things. And then lastly, I would say that, as I say to all women, we start losing insulin sensitivity as we are getting closer to perimenopause and menopause. So as we are losing estrogen or estradiol, which is our predominant form of estrogen prior to going through menopause, we become less insulin sensitive. We're also losing muscle mass. And so it is not at all uncommon for people to start seeing this loss of insulin sensitivity, which in many ways we'll see this blood sugar variability, but I'm not per se suggesting this is the case. I'm just giving you this kind of full clinical picture of what could be precipitating what's going on. So I see a lot of women who are doing a lot of the, a lot of really good things. And then they're not realizing that as we're losing some of these sex hormones, it makes us less metabolically flexible. So just to really be thinking again, to recap, what stage of life are you in? What stage are you in in your menstrual cycle? If you're still getting a menstrual cycle, thinking about you know even a continuous glucose monitor, which would give you really a good snapshot if that's within your budget. If you are insulin resistant, that's generally covered by insurance. Um, I'm really a huge fan of Nutrisense. I love their app for interpreting um, data from a continuous glucose monitor. They use the Freestyle Libre, which oftentimes you can um, have prescribed by for you by your physician or nurse practitioner, treating provider, if you are indeed insulin resistant or diabetic. But again, as Ben mentioned, and I completely agree with one or two measurements don't give us a full clinical picture. So we definitely would want to see more data. I'm a data nerd. I'd love to see more data to be able to provide additional guidance. But thus far, um, your ketones look great. I would say your blood sugar could be a couple different things that are impacting. It doesn't necessarily mean it's something that's negative. Yeah, and you touched upon it with the sleep thing. It could it could just be that, right? It could be a, a sleep issue right now because we know. I mean, I just did an Instagram. I recorded an Instagram reel that I'm going to post shortly about this. Just having the study showed that in healthy adult men, after just seven days of getting five hours of sleep or less, they had blood sugar levels of those of somebody who's pre-diabetic, and you know, one fifteen or whatever the the marker was. What was it? One uh, fifteen. Yeah, uh, that's you know, pre-diabetic blood markers, right? So it could be that. And it's not really the total amount of sleep. It's the quality, uh, right? So if you're not tracking how much deep in REM you're getting, and you're just saying, ah, but I get seven hours or eight hours sleep per night, you might be kind of missing if, if you're getting the quality sleep. So that's where like an aura ring or a whoop band or whatever kind of a sleep tracker would give you those totals. And, and I would say, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, I would say, in general, for most people, it's a good idea to get about 90 minutes to two hours of deep and about same thing, two hours or so of REM sleep. And if you're hitting that, then that should help with those blood sugar numbers. And if you're not, then I would work on that sleep component. Would you say, Cynthia, those are like good numbers to hit for REM? And, and, I, have a, and I have a smirk on my face, Ben, because I get asked this question so often. I usually say 90 minutes of both at a minimum. And for both those watching, we've got both have aura rings on. And I'm the first person to say I'm not using the beta data that you know, there, there, <laughs> there's this new beta test. And I'm like, that's messing up my deep and my REM sleep numbers. I'm just going to stay with the, the old school. But I think it's very, very important to understand what impacts REM and deep sleep and understanding that one really is for the brain, one is for the body. But if you're not getting 90 minutes, if you've got uh, whether it's a whoop band or an aura, really working diligently. And, and for me, I find that a lot of my women need to uh, tap more into the parasympathetic. So more into the rest and repose side. We're so sympathetic dominant. We're go, 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 go. We want, we, we're those big taskmasters. And so for me, connection with nature in the morning is very helpful for this. I have a PMF mat, which Mindy actually recommended, and I completely love it. And everyone I talk to, I'm like, it's my favorite, one of my favorite things I do every day to honor my body. 
you don't necessarily have to have a PMF map, but finding things that slow you down are going to be very, very helpful for helping your body get into that parasympathetic so that you're going to get high quality sleep. One other thing that I find really can impact my sleep is hydration. And so I was just back from a trip and it was amazing to see. I can tell when I'm well hydrated because my HRV is better and my sleep scores are better. So hydration is something that's pretty benign that we don't even think about. So I just wanted to kind of add that into the sleep piece. If you have those metrics, if you can look at those metrics, they keep me honest. They really, really do. And I think they do for a lot of us. Yeah, they do. I'm also like a data nerd like you, Cynthia. So I like looking at that. It inspires me to want to improve those. It's like a game that I play with myself. And there's one, you know, one thing to put value on those numbers, but there's also another thing to actually put value on your intuition and how you feel. So I, I don't want to let my aura ring tell me how my I should feel today, but I also use it as a gauge. And it's a pretty good gauge. I like the the aura ring. So I love that you mentioned the parasympathetic nervous system, because that is so important, not just for women, but for men, people out there in this this day and age, we're just so sympathetic dominant. So that PEMF mat is a, a great idea. I have two of them myself from higher dose. Is that who you have them from too? Or I, I do. And the embarrassing thing is that uh, my entire family now uses it. So when I get on it, my dogs get on it with me. Yes. And then I found my husband asleep on it one night and he was like, this is fantastic. And so he gets on it every day. He does jujitsu sometimes in the evening, showers, comes home, and then he takes a nap in the corner. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So same thing in my household. Every morning, it's part of my morning routine. First, Natasha does it. And she does meditation while she lays on it. And the cats love it. So they just go, they are actually there on the mat before she comes in here waiting for her to turn it on with the red light. And then I do it. And then I have my dog lay on it throughout the day as well. Now that does cost money, but you could get similar benefits um, by grounding outside, just walking barefoot uh, on grass or, or dirt. But uh, I also love that you brought up the circadian rhythm part of this with the glucose. That's very important. We don't want to negate what Cynthia said there or, or, or undervalue what Cynthia said there because morning sunshine and just syncing your circadian rhythm is going to help with pretty much every area of health, especially the, the blood glucose. So uh, I know that what we don't recommend is eating too close to bed. So having about at least three to four hours of fasting. And something that's interesting, I'm reading a book from Dr. Sachin Panda, not the circadian code, but a, a more recent one called the circadian diabetes code, which uh, he's making the case and he's making a pretty pretty good case that most of these uh, insulin resistant diabetes cases are a result of a mismatch in their circadian rhythm. And there's a study in the book that was fascinating. It was done on mice, but mice have this uh, super, what is it called? Suprachiasmatic nucleus, suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is our, it's an internal clock in our brain. Mice have it, humans have it. And in the study, they found that mice were in the habit in the labs of sleeping during the day, eating at night, and following that pattern, that circadian, their natural circadian pattern, they had pretty good glucose levels. And the only thing they changed in the study is they actually removed the supra, I always have trouble saying that word, suprachiasmatic nucleus from their brain. I know it sounds awful, but they survived. And it distorted them. So their internal clock distorted them where they were eating during the day and they developed diabetes as a result. And that's essentially what's happening to us. We are having a mismatch. It's like us removing this part of our brain. So we want to get back to our natural circadian rhythm and morning sunlight is a fantastic way to do that. It's really interesting. I haven't read his newest book, but I'm super familiar with his research. And I think it just provides further validation that we are designed to eat when it's light outside, not eat before bedtime, 
it's aligned with the way that, you know, we've thrived over thousands and thousands of years, but it's only since the advent of light and the processed food industry that all of a sudden people are doing exactly the opposite. And in many ways to the detriment of our metabolic health. That's so true. Uh, it's so true, especially when you think about all these artificial lights that are everywhere. And it serves its purpose. Like, thank God we could light ourselves up in, in an indoor environment, but we want to do our best to get outside. Even, I know what you're thinking, those listening and watching, but Ben, you live in Miami. You got sun all the time. That is true. But even on an overcast day, you could still get the benefits. Just take off your sunglasses and just get that morning sunshine. But you all could not eat at least three hours before bed. That Just doing that alone will make a big difference with your circadian rhythm. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I was just five hours ahead. So I was in London last week. And one of the things that I was trying was different strategies going over and coming back to be able to address jet lag. And so I'm I'm planning on doing an IG Live later today to actually talk about it. If not, it'll be over the weekend. But I think for so many people, it's understanding that our, our body takes in so much information with these light and dark cues and how it impacts metabolic flexibility and insulin. I mean, it just it's so, so important. And I love that you brought up Sachin's new book. I need to actually grab that. Yeah, it's really good. I'm loving him about halfway through. I'm going to, have you interviewed him yet? I have not. He's on my like yeah, me mental neither. radar. Yeah, me too. I'm going to, when I'm done with the book, I'm going to reach out. Yeah, he, his work is, is fantastic. And real quick, back to the HRV piece, the Aura Ring gives you that heart rate variability score, which is um, great to get your baseline and work on building that up. The drawbacks though of Aura Ring is that it doesn't give you your HRV throughout the day. They can't because the technology, they use light technology. And if you're moving, it's hard to capture HRV. But when you're sleeping, you're, you're put. So it doesn't give you a good score overnight. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, Cynthia, but there's a company out there called Hanu Health. And they created a continuous heart rate variability monitor. I'm actually wearing one right now. Oh, it's like a, it's like I, I need a, to hear more about this, Ben. Yeah, it's like a heart rate strap. And on my phone, I could see exactly what my HRV is throughout the day. And it gives you different scores. So that's pretty cool to gauge you know, how your nervous system is. But one of the things that I've learned with that app, and I interviewed the gentleman who owns it, Dr. JT Wiles, is that you could significantly get into parasympathetic with some simple breathing exercise, like in a minute. I interviewed him yesterday and we did a 60 second breathing session and I raised my HRV 133% in a minute by just breathing in. It was like breathing in for about five seconds and then exhaling slowly for about four seconds for a minute. Like, so that might actually help with glucose numbers, just getting into that parasympathetic state and just breathing through your nostrils and get out of the habit of uh, mouth breathing. That's really interesting. So a lot of that is stimulating the vagus nerve. And that's always my, my cheat. You know, Ben and I obviously do a lot of public speaking. And sometimes I get like excited before I'm doing a lot of public speaking. And so my way of slowing my heart rate down and getting myself out of that fight or flight mode is to do rhythmic breathing. But I, I love that. I'll have to connect with you separately because I may be interested in interviewing this individual as well. It sounds very exciting. I think you'll love it. Yeah. I want to take a brief minute to share something with you. For many years, I used to take fish oil and recommend it. And I see a lot of people in the keto space overdoing it with fish oil. There are several reasons why I am not a fan of fish oil and why I stopped recommending it to all of my clients several years ago. Number one, 83% of fish oil is expected to be rancid on the shelf before you even consume it. There was also an experiment done. This study was called the Iowa Screening Experiment. This study showed it took 18 weeks to reverse the negative effect of the incorporation of EPA and DHA from fish oil into the cell membrane. Another study 
found that fish oil increased the risk of colon cancer in mice. Here's the quote. We found that mice developed deadly late-stage colon cancer when given high doses of fish oil. More importantly, with the increased inflammation, it only took four weeks for the tumors to develop. Simply put, I stopped taking it. I stopped recommending it. I use a plant-based Omega from Pureform. This supplement is nitrogen-infused, which preserves and protects it. It has the proper balance of omega-6 to omega-3, and most importantly, it gives you the derivatives, the building blocks, they're called parent essential oils, for you to produce your own EPA and DHA. If you wanna learn more about Pureform, head over to purelifescience.com. Use the coupon code BEN4, that is B-E-N, the number four, at checkout, and you'll get $4 off your capsules of Pureform. We will also drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. All right, let's go back to this episode. Janie has asked, I'm always trying to get more protein within my fasting window. I try to have two protein-rich meals a day in an effort to reach the 100 grams per day goal, more on a really good day. My question is, how much protein can my body absorb at one time? I keep reading that the body can only absorb 30 grams of protein in any four-hour period, or is it more important to have a certain amount of protein in a 24-hour period? Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Cynthia, you're, you're one of your close friends is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. So I'll let you take the question first, and then I'll just add to whatever you share, because I know you've done a lot of research on this topic. So what, what is your answer? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. So Janie, Gabrielle is a, indeed a good friend, and I've had many conversations with her about this. It's the amount of protein over a 24-hour period of time I think many years ago, there was some faulty recommendations that, you know, the protein bolus your body could handle at any one time was 30 grams. We know that's not the case. It's a tw- it's over a 24-hour period of time. So don't let that be a concern. I aim for no less than 50 to 60 grams per meal. I'm always aiming for oh, wow. 100, 120. Is, and so I get some pretty large protein boluses, and I'm not the least bit concerned because I can maintain muscle mass and build from where I am uh, with that consumption. Ben, what would you say would have been your experience? Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know you were doing 50 to 60 grams each meal. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, I like that. I agree. Uh, that 30 grams is bogus. There's no truth to that. It's really over the 24-hour period. And if you do consume excess protein, if you have healthy kidneys, I mean, you're about to just filter it out. If you have a history of kidney disease, then you might want to take caution. And of course, none of this is medical advice. But uh, I know Gabrielle Lyon is a big fan of having enough protein at whatever that time that first meal is and whatever time that last meal. And I think her like minimum recommendation is 40 grams. So as, if you're at least doing that, let's say you're having two meals at noon and at 6 p.m., if you're at least getting 40 grams of animal-based protein at each of those meals you're probably going to be getting enough protein. And of course, if you could increase that, especially if you're strength training or over the age of like 60, that'll be even better. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is definitely an area of great interest, I think, to both of us, because so many of the people that we work with are north of 40. And so we know sarcopenia or muscle loss with aging is a real thing. And we want to work against that. And one of the ways we do that, other than strength training, is eating enough animal-based protein. Okay. Next question. Want me to read the Suzanne's question to you? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a question that Ben admittedly said. This is a Cynthia question. Yes, this is a Cynthia question. So I'll read it. It's from Suzanne. Suzanne says, this is not a keto question. So if it isn't relevant, don't ask it, but we will ask it. So I was wondering if there is anything you have found to help shift the metabolism of estrogen away from the 
4-OH pathway. I have tried two different liver cleanses and live an extremely clean lifestyle. Nothing seems to be changing it. Thank you. It's a great question. And for anyone that's listening that has zero familiarity with what Suzanne is referring to, she's referring to a a test called the Dutch, where you can incorporate dried urine and or saliva, looking at many different variables. But she's specifically speaking to estrogen metabolism in the body. And there are, you know, three key areas of estrogen metabolism that are looked at in this particular test, 2OH, 4OH, 16OH. And rather than go down a massive rabbit hole of explaining in great detail what each of them demonstrate, we want the bulk of our estrogen to go down this beneficial 2OH pathway. And you want to think about the 16OH as, you know, it's kind of in the middle. It's not good nor bad, but 4OH is obviously the one where you get most concerned about. And this is the one that has the potential, I'm going to emphasize potential to bind to and damage our DNA. And so I start really thinking about environmental exposure. I start thinking about the plastics in our environment. I start to think a great deal about things in our food, um, you know, sourcing from clean areas. I know that Suzanne mentioned that she eats a pretty clean diet, but really understanding that it's our cumulative exposure over time. And then also personal care products. And this is why as much as it's a total bummer to have to think so diligently about parabens and phthalates and all these estrogen mimicking chemicals, I start to really think, you know, going down that additional rabbit hole and considering that you may need to clean up more in your diet. I do think there is some degree of genetic susceptibility. And this in particular is, uh, you know, the 4-OH when I've seen them really high, I do think it's a combination of, Genetic susceptibility, meaning, you know, you could have the genetics that are primed to make you more susceptible. I do think it's also a combination of personal care products, environment and food, and then just really realizing that you have to keep those detoxification pathways healthy and optimized. And it may be that you do need to do purification programs with products that are going to support the liver, really leaning into foods that are going to support the liver and then getting retested and obviously working with someone that can help support you in that process. Ben, I don't, are you doing Dutch interpretation in your programs? Yeah, we do. Uh, and that's exactly what we look at those, those three pathways. And we see that a lot actually with the, the four pathway being a little bit high. So your advice is spot on. You know, I, I always talk about those environmental toxins. So get out of the habit of, of drinking water out of a plastic bottle as much as possible, go glass, uh, think about the Tupperware, the cooking supplies, like the pans, the everything, everything in the household, and even like your detergents and soaps and everything in the household. So just start chipping away and getting and replacing it with healthy alternatives. The good news is that there are healthy alternatives out there. You just have to kind of do some research to figure out which ones they are. But I do have a question for you. In this situation, would you suggest something like dim or, or just increasing, um, you know, brock cruciferous vegetables? Where, where would that fall into place with this? Yeah, I mean, so depending on what their phase, so we're speaking to phase one metabolism, and then there's phase two, depending on what their information. So you want to think about it as a drain, like it's this drain and phase one, you get a clog in one area of the drain and phase two, it's a clog in another area of the drain. I'm oversimplifying things. I do find that DIM and calcium deglucarate can be very helpful, um, just depending on where those clogs are. Thinking about sulforaphane and broccoli sprouts and things like that can be beneficial. I do feel like when the 4-OH is high, 
um, and high to a point where, you know, the provider kind of says, okay, this is an outlier. This is not the norm. This is not a little bit above the norm. This is significantly over the norm that you really have to be a little more aggressive. And so in conjunction with speaking with the patient, really, you know, diving into that lifestyle piece, really getting granular about how much you can push. And, and when I say push, sometimes when, depending on how old the patient is, Sometimes the woman may not have a lot of circulating extra estrogen. And so giving them dim may provoke low estrogen symptoms. So that may mean hot flashes. That may mean they have more um, vasomotor symptoms. They may have more vaginal symptoms. You know, unfortunately, the loss of estrogen is systemic. It's not localized to one part of the body when women are transitioning into menopause. So I think it's really looking top to bottom but definitely DIM and calcium deglucrate and sulforaphane and broccoli sprouts and all those things would definitely be part of that. But I do think it would be a multi-pronged approach and also seeing, is this someone who needs methylation support? Is this someone that needs um, additional cofactors to be able to support their body? And then retesting. I always tell if, if the 4-OH is high, it is absolutely positively important that we are retesting. Yeah, well said. Uh, methylation is is a good idea to explore. A lot of people they're just not methylating properly, and the Dutch test gives you an idea of your methylation too. So we definitely utilize different methyl groups and methylation um, supplements to help with that. Especially if somebody has like the MTHFR gene, they're really they really need some support, maybe some a B vitamin complex. But yeah, looking at the full picture, and that's I'm glad you said that and you explained it so well because. If somebody just goes on like Dr. Google, maybe they, maybe they get a Dutch test and they see their 4-OH is high, they might say, oh, I'm just going to go on DIM. But that might not be the best solution for you. That actually could create too much estrogen being lost and those low estrogen symptoms that you mentioned. So that's where it's important to have a practitioner look at the full picture like Cynthia just described and then make those custom recommendations. So I'm glad you explained it like that. Well, thank you. And I think one of the things that's important that I'll just tie into the Dutch is that the Dutch is probably one of the most complicated tests that I've ever worked with. And so sometimes I get calls from physician friends that want me to review Dutchess. So I always say that it's important to, to work with someone that's looked at a lot of these because it takes time to become proficient at interpreting them. And uh, I always jokingly say that, uh, you know, the first time I looked at the Dutch test, I was like, oh my gosh, there's dials and numbers. And now that I understand the subtleties of the Dutch, as I'm sure you do as well, it's like, it's really an exciting test to be able to educate people about their bodies. Really, really exciting. Yeah, it's a great test. It's my, it's my favorite hormone test. But you're right. In the beginning, I'm like, what am I looking at? Dr. Pompa, teach me. Show me how to read this. And he taught me. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, next question is how to use fasting to help with candida. This is Karen's question. Yeah. Well, you know, when you, when you fast, especially like a prolonged fast, let's say past 24 hours, your innate intelligence, your body is going to be starving down bacteria, good and bad in the gut, including candida. Or candida feeds off of food feeds off of sugar, feeds off of uh, heavy metals as well. So when you're in a fasted state, there's not a lot of food for candida to feed on. So naturally, you're going to get probably a decrease in candida because you're starving it off. So you're, you, that's where it could help. But here's the thing, you want to make sure you break the fast properly and like refeed with like prebiotics and maybe even probiotics. So sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, you want to break it the right way and not just break the fast with like a donut or a pizza and just feed them all <laughs> again. You might feel awful too. So depending on how long you fast, you'll get more of that starving down, uh, which can, by the way, result in some die-off symptoms. So just keep in mind, that might be the case as well. So you might want to go low and slow and kind of build that fasting muscle up. But that's how fasting could help. And what are your thoughts on that, Cynthia? 
No, I think you bring up such good points. I would say that, um, you know, autophagy, which is this waste and recycling process that goes on with fasting can be very beneficial, not just for candida, but any type of opportunistic organisms, whether it's parasites, worms, God forbid, you know, dysbiosis, all these things that don't belong, but have found their way into our digestive system. I think it's also very helpful to understand that there are therapeutic benefits from things like caprylic acid or MCT oil, obviously working in conjunction with your own provider that's made recommendations. Um, therapeutically, I will oftentimes say, you know, having some MCT oil or caprylic acid can be very beneficial therapeutically for killing off the candida. And I love that you brought off, and, and this can happen in any antimicrobial program, but understanding that you have to have biofilm disruptors. So um, each one of these opportunistic um, organisms, they will adhere to the cell wall and they create a biofilm. And so part of it, you want to break up the biofilm and then you want to bond, have something bind to it so you can get rid of it. Very, very important to understand that, you know, a biofilm breaker and a binder are critically important when you're working on these protocols and uh, understanding you may need more detoxification support, more dry brushing, sweating, sauna, exercise, um, rest while you're going through these protocols, because the die-off is no joke. I'll be the first person to say that, you know, we were just talking about the Dutch and phase one and phase two liver detoxification. And sometimes when you do these protocols, if you're working with someone, they're already thinking ahead that that has the potential for being an issue. One of the reasons why we, we use binders and why we use biofilm breakers is to help support the body in addition to everything else we're doing. So really understand there's a very comprehensive approach. We definitely want to be careful and conscientious. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Low and slow is always the way to start because you never know. You could speed up phase one and phase two comes to a crashing halt and then you're not going to feel very good. That has happened to me personally. It was pretty pretty miserable until we had figured out what was what was going on. Yeah, so don't though you don't let Cynthia already went through the pain. You don't have to go through the pain. Learn from Cynthia's lesson. And you're right, I see that all the time. So low and slow, you always want to think of this as a muscle that you're developing, you know, over time. Uh, and you could definitely get yourself there in a short amount of time, but just don't do it day one. So that's very exactly. Important. I have a great question from Michaela. I was recently diagnosed with gallstones. Apparently, I have one blocked duct. I did some research and found saturated fat is not supposed to be so great for this condition. I plan to do a gallbladder liver flush, which will take care of the stone issue. But until then, what would you recommend I eat? I still want to be keto. I finally achieved metabolic flexibility and I'm fat adapted. And it just makes me want to cry to think that I have to go back to eating the other way. I do not want to do that. Do you have any thoughts for me at all on this, Ben? Thank you so much. Yeah, Michaela's in my academy and I know that she's having that challenge right now. So yeah, absolutely. You definitely don't have to go back to your old, you know, carbohydrate ways. But here's the thing: when I when I interviewed Dr. William Davis, author of Wheat Belly and other incredible books, Super Gut, uh, we talked about this. We talked about the gallbladder, gallstones, uh, obstructed bile ducts, and a lot how why why a lot of doctors, conventional doctors, think it's a saturated fat or a fat issue, and why that's a big misconception. It's actually your body got so used to being a sugar burner and eating carbohydrates. Now you've increased your fats, including saturated fats, and you don't have the proper efficiency or enzymes, the proper bile flow, bile acids to start breaking it down, which can actually lead to those symptoms. And that's where they're, they're telling you it's because you incorporated the fats that's causing it, but it's really because you've stayed away from the fats for such a long time, your body kind of forgot how to break them down. So what do you do? Yeah, I think a gallbladder flush, awesome. That's that's a great idea. But you want you want to go really low and slow. You want to actually have smaller meals, more 
spread out throughout the day. Uh, I wouldn't practice OMAD one meal a day. I wouldn't even do two meals a day with two big meals of fats. I would have three to four, maybe even five meals that are smaller and give your gallbladder, give your liver time to adapt. It might take a month. It might take a little bit longer. At the same time, you could take some bile salts. You could take some digestive enzymes. Definitely increase your digestive bitters. We talk a lot about that, Cynthia, right? So uh, arugula, lemons, and limes, even like high-quality coffee, artichokes, apple cider vinegar. Uh, find ways to support the liver. Find ways to support the gallbladder. Have those meals that are smaller. And this is the only time I would probably recommend like smaller, more frequent meals back to like the personal training days. But in this scenario, you don't want to have a whole bunch of fat in one sitting. You want to spread it out give your gallbladder and your liver time to adjust. And over time, it will. I know that it will. I, I don't know how long it will take, but uh, definitely it will over time if you just put that protocol into place. What are your thoughts, Cynthia? No, it's such a good point. And I, I wish I could say that this is not uncommon, but I do see a lot of women in particular that start doing um, a lot of healthy fats after eating a standard American diet and sometimes they'll get stuck in keto or they'll get stuck like plateaus. Um, obviously having gallstones is, is an inconvenient and uncomfortable thing. And I'm so sorry to hear that. I can't speak to gallbladder flushes, excuse me. Um, I can't speak to a gallbladder liver flush because I've never advised anyone around that. However, I love the idea of lower fat, leaner meat and, and items to be incorporating into your diet and supporting your body in additional ways. Ben brought up bitters. I think about um, ox blood and bile salts. I think about, you know, incorporating those bitter foods that are going to be able to support your body very gently. And then, you know, really understanding that when you were eating a standard American diet and transitioned to a ketogenic low carb diet, and you're incorporating less processed foods, but your body has gotten, has had a lag. You know, there was this period of time when it was probably functioning fairly optimally. And then when you're eating a more processed diet, your, your gallbladder and, you know, you're, you're just not breaking down and emulsifying healthy types of fats. And so it's just become inefficient. It's kind of like, you know, the gallbladder has just been on hiatus and now we're asking it to come back and play in the Super Bowl and it's just not ready. So I, I think on a lot of different levels, it's understanding that it's not the saturated fat per se that is creating the issue. It's probably the incorporation of, you know, these healthy fats, your body's trying, struggling to help and break them down. And you just need to kind of, you know, back off a little bit on the accelerator. I do agree with Ben that you probably want to have smaller meals with less fat. So maybe you're having leaner meats, you know, chicken breast, filet, uh, you know, cod, you know, leaner meats and fish that are going to make it a little bit easier for your body to assimilate. And hopefully in conjunction with working with your uh, healthcare practitioner, you'll be back to feeling better very soon. That's a great analogy with the Super Bowl. Well, the Super Bowl is coming up in just a few days. So perfect analogy. Yeah, you're right. You know, you have this, you have this football player, the gallbladder, who has been on hiatus, retired for like, I don't know, 10 years. And now you're like, hey, uh, you're starting in the Super Bowl in three days. I, you got to get ready to go. That's not going to be fun. So you got to train that player. You got to train the gallbladder. And what we just shared is exactly how you train it. Exactly. Exactly. Next question is from Lena. I've been doing strict keto with OMAD for three months, but my last blood work shows my GGT is very high, 92 in Canadian measures. Could it be too high because of fasting? I don't know. You know, this is very similar to the previous question, Michaela. 
I don't know if you're also doing fasting with keto. And if that's the case, if you have incorporated more fats, then it could be the similar uh, issue with Michaela to go low and slow and you know add in all the things that we suggested. I'm not sure, Cynthia. I, I read the question earlier and I haven't seen that be a problem with fasting, but may you, maybe you have. So I'm going to throw the question your way and hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I see liver enzymes that are elevated, I start thinking about what's going on with the liver. And the first thing I think about is fatty liver or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NOFLD as it's now called. And so I, I don't know what your baseline was and I don't know what your lab. So it's always in the context of what was your lab before and what is it now? And so I think that's significant. One elevated lab is something to monitor. I'm not by any means discounting it, but I think it's also important like are you in a position where you need to have a, an ultrasound of your liver? I mean, is there something else going on? And, and I start to think about insulin resistance. And I think it's great that you've been doing OMAD and you've been having success with it. But I also start to think, you know, prior to initiating that, were you in a position where you were less insulin sensitive? Were you um, in a position where you were insulin resistant? And there's some degree of fatty liver that we just need to be looking for. I'm in the process of preparing for a talk and it's talking about insulin sensitive obese people and what the metrics are that help you understand like who are the people that are going to go on to develop full-blown diabetes um, and insulin resistance. And one of the big prognostic indicators is do you have a fatty liver? So from my perspective, this would be something that needs to be followed up on. I doubt it's probably from the fasting. It could be a byproduct of this transitional. I don't know where your numbers were before, so that doesn't give me context. But I think it requires a little bit more information, a little bit more research, and very likely might be an existing mild issue that that might just need to be followed. Yeah, well said. That's um, fascinating because yeah, you're right. Fasting with, with fasting, you're gonna pull fat from the liver. So if anything, it's actually needed for fatty liver or high GGT uh, markers. But you never know. You know, sometimes there's scenarios where there's different things at play here. But I do know this: one of the best nutrients you can give your liver is choline. So either eating eggs or taking some choline supplementation, and that should nudge things in the right direction. But to Cynthia's point, those numbers could be on its way down. It could have been much higher a few months ago before you started to implement OMAD. We don't know unless you do have those numbers. So I would see if you do have those numbers, look at the previous test results. And if you don't have them, then follow some of the protocols you're learning and then retest in about 90 days and see where it's trending and even potentially go get an ultrasound done to see if there's anything else going on. Yeah, I always say when there's like one elevated test, we pay attention to it. We're not at all suggesting not to have the conversation with your ordering provider about what they want to do. But one test without having context makes it challenging to interpret. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, we got lots of questions about insomnia. We did. Yes. Okay. Number one question, why do we experience insomnia while doing a ketogenic diet? And then the other question was how to address chronic insomnia patterns. So mm. lots of concerns about sleep. And this is from, the first question was from Yousef. And the other one was, uh, I was literally DM'd the other question by multiple people on Instagram this morning. Yeah, so I'll preface this and say I'm not an insomniac expert or, or a sleep expert, but I have written a book on sleep and I have studied to sleep, uh, sleep a lot and sleeping patterns. So, is Cynthia, I've never seen the ketogenic diet cause insomnia. I've never seen that. I have seen the ketogenic diet cause sleep issues. So, I'm wondering if this was something before that just is reoccurring because keto triggered it somehow. I, I'm not sure, but here's what I would recommend for those who are struggling with sleep on keto. 
Um, I would recommend actually increasing your carbs a little bit, uh, meaning maybe it's not going to be low enough for you to remain in ketosis, but just the way is your body to kind of adapt a little bit and get some carbs. But also having some raw honey right before bed, give your, your brain some glucose. So about a teaspoon of raw honey before bed could help with sleep if you're struggling with sleep on keto. I've also seen taking some MCT oil or coconut oil before bed help with that as well. And if you're doing that and you're still having insomnia, then I would definitely speak with like somebody who's an expert on that. I know that it also depends if it's acute insomnia or if it's chronic, they're treated very differently. My fiance, Natasha, she's had intermittent insomnia in the past and it's always triggered from a, a stressful event. Like if her mom was in the hospital, that ruminating of like, what's going to happen to my mom, the mental stress gets her into an acute insomnia state where um, some of the things that we've learned for her is when she's lying down in bed and let's say it's 30 minutes and she's just you know thinking about why can't I fall asleep? Why can't I fall asleep? Some of the, One of the things we do for her is, okay, get out of bed, do something else. Don't just lay there thinking about it, do something else and then go back and retry. You don't want to just lay in bed thinking about why you're not falling asleep. At least for Natasha, we got her out of bed. She did some things for about 10, 20 minutes, laid back in bed, and that seemed to help as well. And then getting to the root cause of what, what is causing that mental stress and figuring out what the blessings are there. I know you said it, you think it's keto doing it, but there might be some other things at play here. So those are my thoughts, Cynthia. What would you add to that? No, so wise. And I love that you are so lovingly supportive of Natasha when she's having sleep issues. I would say MCT oil is always probably my go-to when I, I suspect it might be a blood sugar dysregulation thing. Lots of things to unpack. There's acute versus chronic insomnia. Acutely, I do see uh, stressful events, uh, the rise in cortisol, rise in blood sugar, rise in insulin. That can definitely get people into a, a trouble sleeping pattern that can then develop into chronic insomnia. But there's a differentiator. There's difficulty falling asleep and difficulty staying asleep. And I think both of them need to be addressed a little bit differently. So if you're having trouble falling asleep, that's a sleep hygiene thing. Uh, whether or not it's related to the stressful event or you're moving or you're changing jobs or you've had a breakup or there's something just going on in your life and really trying to get your brain out of uh, and also understanding that, you know, we have the amygdala, which is our lizard brain. If that overrides our prefrontal cortex and we can't, you know, we're like ruminating thoughts. We can't think straight. We're frightened. We're scared. Really understanding we need to do things to calm that central nervous system. And so whether or not that's taking a, a light walk, whether or not that is connecting with a loved one, doing some meditation, expressing gratitude, or as Ben likes to call it, vitamin G, which I love maybe taking a hot bath, maybe you're soaking in magnesium, maybe you enjoy uh, aromatherapy like lavender that kind of helps you, you know, get out of that fight or flight response, um, breathing exercises. Um, there's also supplements that can be helpful. I think about phospholysterine. So I, I like Seraphos in particular. Uh, yeah, I, I use that. Yeah, I use that as needed uh, myself personally. And then I, I do recommend that as a supplement as needed, not we don't chronically want to be lowering our cortisol, but if you're feeling like you're, you're stressed and can't gear down for bed, um, get off electronics, read a book. I mean, there's so many things is a big difference from people who chronically wake up between two and four, one and three every night. And I see a lot of women that struggle with this, but I know men do as well. Some of it can be hormonal, like are you in perimenopause? Your body, your ovaries are making less progesterone. Progesterone is this inhibitory hormone that's designed to be relaxing and sedating. And, you know, I'll see women that are waking up in the middle of the night, 
they're more anxious and depressed, and that can be a byproduct of this loss of progesterone. The other thing to mention is, yes, our adrenal glands kind of step in to help support with progesterone production, but then we become a little less stress resilient. So if you have a stressful event, it can make it much harder to manage and mitigate the stress. It doesn't mean you can't handle stress. We're just not as good at it. The other thing to think about is, uh, you know, get your hormones tested. Is it a progesterone piece? Because I, I see a lot of therapeutic benefit from transdermal or even compounded bioidentical progesterone. I jokingly tell my functional medicine doc that I will be taking progesterone until the day I die because it has such a great net impact on my sleep quality. And there are lots of foods that can help with progesterone support in the body, but they're not going to replace the hormones. So just something to think about. Beyond that, I think about blood sugar dysregulation. What's your what's your meal plan like? Like there are ketogenic low carb treats. And I think for a lot of people, they assume, oh, I'm eating ketogenic diet, but I'm eating keto junk. It's still junk. Um, we want to make sure that our, our meals are fortified with healthy fats, protein, and um, non-starchy carbohydrates. The other thing is sometimes I do have some women that they're too low carb and that disrupts their sleep. So experimentation with carbohydrates, maybe you have a little bit of carbohydrate with your dinner. Maybe you're trying the MCT oil. I think there's a degree of experimentation. And then also understanding if you wake up in the middle of the night, what are you doing for that? I do find things like myo-inositol can be very helpful for not only inducing sleep, but also helping if you wake up in the middle of the night. And actually Huberman Lab talks about how it's part of his sleep stack. So I always say, you know, another objective opinion, things that can be very helpful for falling back to sleep. I think about GABA. I also think about L-theanine. Um, and if you're noticing, I'm talking about single ingredient supplements because I do see the value in supplements if you're doing all the other lifestyle pieces first, and then you can targetedly add them in. So those are the things I really think about. But the good and positive thing is that personally and professionally, we can work on sleep stuff absolutely positively. Obviously, if it persists, I get concerned about um, the net impact on blood sugar regulation. I know we touched on that earlier. I think about appetite and satiety. Uh, when you don't get high quality sleep, you don't crave broccoli, you're going to crave junk. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about cumulative net effects. One thing I do see, and I'm starting to talk more openly about it, is this overfasting, over-restricting, over-exercising paradigm. I call it the, the triad. And this can happen to men and women. It's not just women. And so really understanding that you could be overdoing it unknowingly. And then the last piece I would add to that, I'm just being mindful of time, is where are you in your menstrual cycle? So if you are a week out of your menstrual cycle um, and progesterone is lower, that could exacerbate sleep. Obviously, if you're male, that's that's not, not the case. But I just wanted to make sure if there's anyone listening that's trying to kind of put all these pieces together, definitely wanted to make sure that that was not an issue. Anything else that you would think of, Ben? It's a great list of things to, to consider. Uh, great list. I'm also a big fan of the Serifos, the phosphatidylserine as a way to calm the adrenal glands. Something that I would add to what you shared is that if you find yourself consistently waking up in the middle of the night between like 1 and 3 a.m., that could also give clues to the liver. Uh, that's in Chinese medicine is the liver time. And sometimes when the liver is sluggish and overwhelmed, then it could be working very hard and it has this cortisol response in the middle of the night and you're just wired and tired laying there. So taking some binders, doing potentially a coffee enema, just doing finding ways to support the liver. We've mentioned a lot of ways during this episode. And then one more thing to it would be your breathing, your airway uh, passage. So a lot of people have are dysfunctionally breathing because of many, many factors, right? I've, I've interviewed a few people on this, but 
Uh, if you've had braces when you were younger, sometimes that crowds your teeth. That's my problem right now. So I'm working on expanding it, but it forces you to breathe through the mouth instead of the nose. So what I do is I mouth tape at night. I wear a, you know, a small adhesive, which forces me to breathe through my nose. And then I wear a breathe right strip. And then I have my earplugs and I have my... <laughs> so my fiance is always making fun of me because I look like <laughs> crazy. But it helps. You know, it helps. So you might want to explore like the breathing issue if that might be the case. You could find a, like a biological holistic dentist to do an assessment. There are sleep studies that you can do at home now. You actually don't have to go to a clinic to do it. I never thought that made sense, by the way, going to a clinic to do a sleep study because you're out of your environment. You're probably worried. About, so it, it doesn't make sense to do it somewhere else. So you could do sleep studies at your own place. But I would explore the liver if you're waking up and then also this, your, your breathing patterns to see if that's the issue there. Such a great addition. I did a podcast last year with James Nestor and his book, Breath. I've read it twice. Yeah. I get something different out of it every time I read it. And as someone who is allopathic trained, I'm like, why did we not talk about this? I was exactly that person. Braces, pulled a bunch of teeth out. I'm the classic example. But what's interesting is for me, what I found that's been hugely beneficial, cold, dark room, blue blockers, sleep mask. I mean, I look ridiculous when I go to bed. I've got blue blockers on. I've got a sleep mask on. I mean, it's like all these things. And what's interesting, much to your point, um, my husband now has to wear a like a mouth retainer because he was he was an obligate mouth breather at night. And I would tell him, like, you're snoring. He was insistent it wasn't happening. But it starts to change the profile of your mouth, your oropharynx. And so understanding that undiagnosed sleep apnea is it's really prevalent. It's not just happening in, in people that are obese or overweight. And, uh, you know, working with someone that can help you understand your own personal anatomy if you do suspect that sleep apnea it might be contributing. And I did actually do a sleep study last year with a little probe on my finger. Um, and yes, you can do them from home now. They're very inexpensive and they really provide some really great information. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, it's so important, you know, so very important. Like like your husband, I was a chronic mouth breather too. And that was because I had, you know, a couple of wisdom teeth pulled out, had braces for a long time. And then and I ate a standard American diet, so mushy diet. And then my teeth got crowded. And naturally, I started breathing through my mouth because I had less uh, room for my tongue and just le less room for my nostrils to get its enough oxygen. So I became a chronic mouth breather. So I'm working with my biological dentist right now. I've been wearing this damn thing for three years, but it's a, a palate expander where I wear it every night up and, and uh, below two little pieces of device, but it's slowly expanding my palate to change that that facial structure so I could naturally breathe through my nose. Because to your point, a lot of people have undiagnosed sleep apnea or just breathing issues. And the solution is not to go on a, a CPAP or supplemental oxygen. As a matter of fact, like when you get on those, it actually makes your own natural mechanisms for oxygen lazier. And you actually are just relying on something exogenous. And as you're teaching your body not to do it naturally. So I'm not saying to get off that if you're using it now, but I'm saying you want to get to the cause and that is proper airway passages. Awesome. Well, we have one last question. And this question is from Mary Jo. I take Cynthia's creatine supplement powder. Can she clarify when is the optimal time of day to take it? before, during, or after working out? Should it be taken on rest days, during the fasting window, et cetera? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so that's your question. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is I, I take creatine in my feeding window because it will technically break a clean fast. I do recommend that women supplement every day in particular because we cannot, we have less endogenous creatine stores in our body, 70 to 80% less. 
it is absolutely essential that we are taking creatine exogenously outside our body because we can't get enough in our foods. Like it would be great if I could just eat enough steak and eggs and that would do it for me, but it really doesn't. So when you say 70, 80%, you mean less than men? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Ah, okay, interesting. Yeah, so we have less. And and what's interesting is you look at the research about women's menstrual cycles. So there's time in our cycles where we need more creatine. And there's really good research supporting its use in perimenopause and menopause. So I always remind women, I think many of us thought of it as a bro supplement, like it's a gym bro thing. Um, And we know based on research, women need three grams a day, men five. And if you're vegan or vegetarian, you actually need more because you're not eating that animal-based protein. But yeah, it's really easy to take it daily. You know, my product in particular blends seamlessly into water and anything else. So it's really nice. But yeah, creatine is my surprise supplemented. I think it's, for me personally, I always like to share this, but you know, being a menopausal female and being able to consistently lift more weight week to week. So we're at a metabolic disadvantage in menopause as we've lost testosterone and estrogen, unless we're on HRT, it's harder to build and maintain muscle. And so for me to be able to get in the gym and do that every week really speaks to the fact that it works. And there's a friend of mine who's 70 years old. She's a clinical psychologist. She's 90 pounds. And she was showing that she did a 300 pound leg press in the gym. She was like, if anyone can build muscle, I can. And so I love knowing that a lot of people are deriving a lot of benefit from it. That's amazing. So interesting. Okay, so three grams for women, five grams for men, vegans need more. That makes sense. So you're saying it breaks the fast. You're saying it's best to have it during your eating window. What What is it about the creatine that breaks the fast? It activates mTOR. There's a glucose response. What is it about well, it? Well, it's so it's an it's a kind of a upregulates ATP production. So in a lot of ways, it's it's like an amino acid. And so I remind people that you know there are people who are like that's the only time I can take it. I'm like that's fine. But it's with the understanding that we want to optimize when it's consumed. It doesn't have to be consumed while you're exercising. We just know that we want it to be consumed in your feeding window. And you really just need that one dose a day just really easily can be incorporated into water, beverages, um, or, you know, however, however you prefer to take it. Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, you know, creatine is one of the most researched supplements out there. There's a lot of research on the benefits of it. And there are a lot of misconceptions out there. It's not just for bros at the gym. It's for every human being. And I didn't know the 70, 80% women have 70 to 80% less creatine and they actually need more, which makes a lot of sense. So yeah, I have a bag of your creatine on my, on my counter. I need to be, get more consistent with using it now. You've inspired me. (laughs) Yes. So when people ask, you know, does it need to be taken in your feeding window or does it only be, is it only consumed on days you exercise? I just refer people to the fact that you'll benefit from taking it every day. Yeah, it makes sense. Awesome. Are there any other supplements, Ben, that are part of your like day-to-day existence, like your must-haves? I'm just curious. I'm asking Ben a question now. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I'm a big fan of, of supplementation from like quality supplements just because, you know, the soils are so depleted and we're just not getting enough quality vitamins and minerals from the food we eat, even if we're eating organic like I tend to do. But uh, the way I see supplements as is as a rotation. I like to rotate supplements. I, I think everything in nature is cyclical. I mean, you, you talk about women's menstrual cycle, it's cyclical. I mean, we have different seasons. So with supplements, same thing, especially supplements with herbs uh, and mushrooms, your body could develop a tolerance to it and you start losing the benefits. So I'm a big fan of supplement rotation in general. So the ones that I definitely use more than others would be a magnesium, uh, whether it's like a 
like a like an upgraded formula is Nano or a, a magnesium blend, but a magnesium because we're just so depleted in that. So magnesium is a go-to. I also love um, Zach Bush's. Uh, pro- actually, I always have it on my desk. I sip it throughout the day. Ion is something that I that I drink throughout the day. It just helps with uh, your tight junctions. What is it? Depends. If I'm traveling, I'll take some like immune support, like a vitamin D complex and some quercetin, liposomal quercetin, et cetera. But what else is a go-to for me? Now it's creatine. <laughs> you've, you've inspired me to stay consistent with creatine. So I'll be on that. And I think those are the ones that are like my go-tos on a consistent basis. I'll rotate things like um, vitamin E and other, other sources, antioxidants, et cetera. But those are like my staples, the magnesium, the ion, and now it's going to be the creatine. What about you, Cynthia? You know, to be honest with you, I rotate too. In fact, my family, I'm like, don't ever touch the supplement cabinet because I have it strategically, order. <laughs> strategically aligned. And ironically enough, my functional medicine doc likes me to stop everything before I come to see him. And I always remind him, I will stop everything but my sleep support. So for <laughs> yes. me, definitely magnesium. Um, I use adaptogens as needed. So whether or not it's ashwagandha, rhodiola, relora, depending on what my stress is like, Definitely for me, it's the sleep piece. So um, myo-inositol, uh, without question, GABA, L-theanine, those are typical, and some melatonin um, because I'm of that age and it really makes a big difference. So for me, those are kind of the non-negotiables and everything else, like especially when I travel, I might add in some binders, I might add in, same with you, some immune support. There's a product by Designs for Health that's literally like six supplements in a little bag. And so I just take those with me when I travel. But more often than not, I try to think about less is more like I never want to be on too much. Like occasionally I'll take a probiotic, but I don't do that consistently because I try to get it from my food. And I do think that's important. And the other piece I would say is that there's a degree of supplement fatigue that I think everyone can experience. So if you're feeling like you're overwhelmed, that's a good sign that you need to like definitely pare down and simplify things because no one wants to be on 40 supplements. Like I've had points in my life when I've been on that many and it's like a second job trying to figure out what I need to be taking. And God forbid I leave my house because I have to have all these supplement containers and I'm fine doing that on the short term, but I don't want to be going to a state of craziness every time I travel. Yeah, well said. It is like a second job with a time commitment, and then you might need a second job because of the money. Exactly. It gets expensive. It gets really expensive. So what I always say is buy the best quality you can afford and try to keep it simple. Like trying to find a simplified regimen, I think makes a big difference. Yeah. In general, like Sundays are a day where I take no supplements. I drink no coffee. It's like a day to just like not have any of that. So I think it's a good protocol to have that in place. I love that. It's interesting. I um, typically drink green tea most mornings of the week. And I'd kind of gotten out of the habit because sometimes I sit down and I'm like, I don't want to be in the midst of drinking green tea. And then I have to get up and, you know, pee while I'm doing all these calls back to back. But I'm reminded that there are benefits in these plant-based compounds. So I think you know, I love that you take a break from from coffee, you know, once a week. And, and just like myself, I don't ever want to be dependent on caffeine to be able to get through my day, which is why I try to not do it every day. But I, I'm definitely one of those people like I, I can, I can consume quite a bit of caffeine and not and not have trouble sleeping. So it's also that other piece of kind of figuring out what what works for you or what doesn't for that matter. Exactly. What a great bonus question. There. Yes, absolutely. Well, Ben, as always, it's a pleasure to connect with you and our listeners, both on Keto Camp and Everyday Wellness. If you love these conversations, these org- very organic conversations from our communities asking us to answer questions, please let us know. 
I certainly enjoy these interactions. It's kind of nice as a podcast host to have like a truly kind of organic conversation flow, et cetera. It is super nice. I enjoyed it. Well, let, let us know. Leave a leave a rating and review on our podcast saying, hey, do a round two, Ben and Cynthia. Do a round two. Let us know if you enjoyed this. We sure enjoyed it. So we would love to do a round two. So we want to hear from you. And uh, yeah, Cynthia, I love what you're doing. It's always a pleasure to collaborate with you. Uh, can't wait to see you in person again and share another stage with you, share another steak dinner with you, whatever it is. I can't wait to see you again. Absolutely. I think I'm going to see you in Denver. Oh, yes. I'm going to see you very soon, actually. That's true. So I can't wait. Awesome. All right, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Thanks. You too. I hope you enjoyed that Ask Us Anything podcast. If you want me and Cynthia to do more of these Ask Us Anything uh, podcast interviews, let us know. Maybe you leave the Keto Camp podcast a rating and review, letting us know how much you enjoyed it. And we will look at that feedback and definitely do another one if we see a lot of comments and and, um, reviews regarding that. Go check out Cynthia Thurlow's website, which is CynthiaThurlow.com. Her Instagram is also incredible. We'll link that down below. Her YouTube is awesome as well. And her podcast is called The Everyday Wellness Podcast. Go get subscribed to her podcast and go get her book, The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which we'll put down below in the podcast notes. If you want to watch the video format of today's interview with Cynthia Thurlow, head over to youtube.com slash ketocamp. Please consider leaving the show rating and review. Share this episode with a friend and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.